it's good to see all of you this morning. Um, welcome. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Bland. I'm the lead pastor here, um, and we're a little uh, full in here today, which is great. Uh, we've been uh, growing. It's an unusual time of the year for us to grow. We typically kind of grow in September, October, November, but um, the Lord has added uh, to our number, so I realize I haven't had a chance to meet everybody. Um, but I did want to offer a gift uh, to anybody um, who's here. If you're um, if you're like me, or many of us were celebrating Lent, uh, I don't know why, how you celebrate Lent. It's kind of a not a happy time. <laughs> Lent in the history, uh, church calendar history, or Christian history, is a time of like deep reflection on your mortality, on uh, on on your sin. It's a period of reflection and uh, preparation for uh, Holy Week, Easter weekend, um, and so. Um, I, it's think, weird to think of it as celebrating uh, Lent, but uh, recognizing Lent or participating in Lent. Uh, during that time, a lot of people will fast. A lot of people will uh, give up something or will also fast from food or uh, focus additional prayer time. And so um, we've got, we had some copies of um, a great book called Celebration of Discipline, which has about 2 million copies that have been sold. Uh, um, Koa had some copies left, so we have some out on the table um, that are available to you for free. And um, does anyone here want one? Like, all right, John, come on. This one's yours, man. You got the first one. Guaranteed. There you go, brother. Um, <laughs> so, see, you jump on it, name it and claim it. Um, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, today is a uh, family worship Sunday, as I said. There's uh, lots of kids in here, and I just want to say this. Listen, I love having kids uh, in the, the service, the, and I want you to know, as, a, as the preacher, they, they are not bothering me if they're making noises and things like that. Now, if they decide to scream at the top of their lungs, maybe if you can't get them to calm down, then gently take them out into the hallway and watch from out there. Um, but otherwise, kids are going to make sounds, and I have gotten, having preached for about 30 years now, I have gotten used to being able to tune it out largely. So, um, but it's, it's a, also a picture that we are a family. We're not just this, you know, adult church. We are a church with children, uh, and God values them. And if we look at Jesus's ministry, he valued them. He actually invited them. He kind of pushed his disciples aside and said, no, let the, let the kids come, let the children come to me. So, um, I think this is our way of saying let the children come. It's also a way of saying we value the Coa Kids workers, right? Um, Hannah Adontis is the Coa Kids director, and she always needs more volunteers. So um, this is a little pitch for that um, to, to help with that. Uh, finally, I wanted to make uh, one other just quick announcement about the launch of a, uh, of a new seminary here in Boston called the Boston School of Ministry. I mentioned this last week, but uh, I'm, I'm involved with it. Uh, my friend Kevin Scott is the director of it. He is running hard with it right now and uh, getting it off the ground. Uh, I am teaching the pilot course on evangelism and apologetics, uh, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, it's going to have two class sessions on Saturdays, one in March and one in May. And you can audit it, register for the class, just audit and show up for the classes. Uh, don't have to do any of the homework, don't have to read any of the books. Or you can take it on a, um, an unaccredited, towards an unaccredited certificate level. There's a little bit more homework. You're supposed to read the books and things like that. Or uh, we are actually offering an accredited degree, uh, two-hour credit, uh, credited uh, two hours towards a master's degree um, from a seminary that we are partnering with right now. So uh, I encourage you to go to the website, Boston, um, bostonschoolofministry.com, and you can learn more about that. But I would love to see some of you in that class. 
Uh, let me take a moment and pray uh, and, and as we get into the word together. Fathers, we come before you and, and reflect on the scripture that was just read. Um, God, it's a, um, it's a powerful story. It is a moving picture of the compassion and mercy of Christ. And yet, God, I know in this room, some of us are dealing with guilt and with shame ourselves. And Lord, we, we need to hear this story afresh and anew. We need to encounter Christ just as this woman who was caught in adultery did. To see his mercy, his kindness, and his sacrifice in our place. So I pray for us to have ears to hear and eyes to see and heart to believe what you have for us today. In your great name we pray, amen. All right, if you're new, you may have picked up on it. We've been walking through the Gospel of John, and this is definitely the most unusual passage in John because it probably doesn't belong in John. Um, <laughs> if you uh, were reading along in your John journal, or even if you have your Bible, there is a uh, bracket in the text that will say something like what's on the screen here. It says, uh, the earliest manuscripts do not contain 753 through 811. That is, um, that is, it should be on the screen. Um, oh, we got problems. All right. So continue to reflect on the Boston School of Ministry. <laughs> See, the Lord wants you to consider signing up for a class. Um, it's very inexpensive. So, um, <laughs> But 753 through 811 in every English translation I've ever seen has a bracket that says the earliest manuscripts don't contain this. And uh, that's a confusing thing. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with it, you don't know the background of that. Um, to give you a little bit of uh, a background, and I'm going to help explain why we're pausing. If it's not in the oldest manuscripts, why are we actually pausing to preach through it today? Was it, can we, should we consider it part of John? Uh, so back in 1440, the printing press was invented. Many of you knew that, but that literally changed the course of human history. Uh, one of the single most important inventions of, uh, of, uh, of its time or in, in human history, much like the internet will be. 500 years from now, they'll look back and go, yeah, you remember the year the internet was invented by Al Gore. Um, but, <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> but it, I, I don't even know what year was technically invented, but it was invented around our time. And it became a radically, it changed human uh, existence on a fundamental level. But before the printing press, um, all, all texts, including the Bible, were copied. They were handwritten copies um, by, by people. And you might think, well, that's it. That's the problem. We have so many issues because people just copied. You don't understand how serious people took copying other texts, even, even non-religious uh, texts. There was a seriousness, a sobriety, a responsibility for the copyist to really approach it um, and meticulously. Um, and, and so in, in this text, um, well, in, when it comes to copies of Scripture, in fact, we don't actually have the original of the Gospel of John. I hate to disappoint you, but we do not have the physical copy of John's Gospel that he wrote out on papyri, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago. We don't. And I actually think it's a good thing. I know you're like, really? That sounds terrible. Uh, <laughs> it would be really handy to have that. It would in a way. But think about how somebody made an observation, and I agreed with them, how much we would be tempted to worship that thing mystify that thing, pray to that thing, 
pay, require people to pay money to come look at that thing. You know, it would become like this, this you know, uh, icon, if you will. Um, instead of recognizing um, what, what really the value of it is not that it was writ- what it was written on, but that it was written itself as the word of God. And so I want to um, share with you, we have thousands of copies of copies of copies of the Gospel of John and other New Testament books, dating over hundreds of years in uh, all over uh, the, the Mediterranean world, if you will, three different continents. We have thousands, in fact, 25,000 copies um, exist. Now, you might think, well, that seems like a lot of copies. How do we know which one's original? One of the amazing things is that these copies tend to line up around 99% of the time. That's staggering if you think about it. Written over hundreds of different years in different copies or in different locations, and yet they line up. That points to something very simple that I can make an observation about. People weren't adding a lot of stuff. In fact, the vast majority of variants between the copies we have are an accent or turning a single noun into a plural noun. Occasionally, someone just couldn't read the previous copy they were writing. They were, they were copying. They, there was a smudge in the ink, and they just sort of made up a new word there or made up a word they thought belonged there, and so it would stick out. By the way, that's also a, a great gift. We have so many copies we can begin to weigh and measure where there are variants. Is that a valuable variant, or is it an actual just a, a copyist mistake? And so Bruce, uh, Will, Will Metzger, who is one of the, the greatest, uh, sorry, uh, one of the greatest uh, textual critics of the 20th century, maybe in church history, studied uh, the, all of these on a, on a deep level. His entire career was studying uh, all of these copies and, and trying to understand the variance and differences. And he is one, was 100% convinced that we have the original now from those copies. We can trust that the English Bible that you and I use, which is translated from uh, these many copies, that we have the original uh, of what John actually wrote. And so there are less than 1% of the variants. That's not 1% of the copies. It's 1% of the variants had anything to do with meaning at all. So if you're going to argue that all these people just started adding and making up these stories about Jesus and throwing in stuff, and like that's why we got this resurrected Jesus guy. I'm sorry, you've got like science is kind of against that. It had to have happened very early, very quickly, or it never happened at all because the copies over hundreds and thousands of years uh, do back each other up sig- uh, significantly. There are only two significant variants in our English translation. In other words, two variants that we, in the whole New Testament, that are a lot of verses that we look and go, we don't know what to do with. That's what one of these is today. 753 through 811 of John uh, is a variant that shows up not in the earliest manuscripts of John, but in some of the later and very reliable manuscripts. <clears throat> it also, weirdly, shows up in a few Luke manuscripts. It, and, and it shows up in John in a couple different places. So what's the deal? What I believe and what most scholars believe is that this story was actually a real-life oral tradition from the life of Jesus. It was held to str- so strongly by early Christians as an oral story, which, by the way, again, when you, may, when you pass an oral story from a parent to a child, you didn't embellish that story because you were actually recording history for your children. 
And so those children would then take that story and then take that on to the next generation to make sure it was accurately communicated. So this story was being circulated. Somebody who was writing down John said, ah, this needs to get in somewhere. Let's stick it here, right? And what's interesting is actually probably belongs better in Luke. The language and stuff is actually more fitting for Luke. So we're treating it today not as an original part of the Gospel of John, but as a reliable story, by the way, which does not, no major doctrine, significant doctrine in any way or shape or form is, um, is uh, based on this text. In fact, what this text really does and the way I want to look at it today is an illustration of what we know about Jesus from all over the rest of the Bible, right? So that's why we have um, this passage. If you want to know more, you want to dig into that more, my notes, I've got a couple of um, links. One is very uh, brief, um, you know, maybe a page. And, uh, and the other one is a Nerd Level 10 article. So you can, you can go to whichever one you would find most helpful. But let's look at this, pactor, uh, this passage. It's a picture of the Pharisees accusing this woman of sin. Uh, her sin is exposed. And then what we see is Jesus' heart on display here. Um, and the big idea I want us to he, uh, hear today, and this is from uh, actually Ray Ortland, Pastor Ray Ortland. He said, the heart of Jesus is for us when we're caught in the act. The heart of Jesus is for us when we're caught in the act. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your background, the worst moment of your life, the worst thing that's ever happened to you, when you're caught in the middle of something, Jesus' heart is for you. I want us to see this by looking at the characters. Um, we see the Pharisees, the woman, and Jesus. So let's dive in looking at the Pharisees. The Pharisees show up demanding justice, right? They show up in this scene, um, and they're demanding that, that uh, Jesus declare, um, that, that Jesus declare uh, the scriptures uh, to, be, to be upheld in this situation, that the Old Testament law be upheld. And the law in related to this um, the law in, in relation to this is very clear in the Old Testament. God, God holds up adultery as a very serious thing. And one of the reasons we know this is because he created marriage in the garden. And then throughout the Old Testament and through the New Testament, his relationship to his people is pictured as a marriage. Therefore, he does not go around looking for other people. And we are not to go around looking for other gods Therefore, human marriage is meant to be a picture of that relationship between us and God. Therefore, adultery matters. Adultery is serious in God's eyes. You may have heard, you shall not commit adultery. Where did that come from? Anybody? Ten Commandments, right? That's one, I mean, that's kind of the, that's a big list. That's an important list. There's only ten of them, and one of them is don't commit adultery. The penalty for that, breaking that commandment was serious, too. In Leviticus 20.10, it says, if a man commits adultery uh, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. This is supported also in Deuteronomy 22. The religious leaders knew this. The Mosaic law that, that they held so closely to um, said that penalty for adultery was death. And they saw this as an opportunity to trip Jesus up. They, if they had really just wanted Jesus' opinion on this, they would have found Jesus privately and gone and talked to him. But instead, what do they do? Where, where is this happening? On the temple mount, in the heart of the city, with thousands of worshipers walking around, they drag this woman up in front of Jesus, throw her down, and demand he declare a verdict. 
course, they didn't know you can't outsmart omniscience or outmaneuver omnipotence. But they found out. So they brought this woman, and you can imagine uh, how she felt being thrown down in front of Jesus, and they gave him this ultimatum, verses 4 and 5. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Honestly, this is, this is ironic because the Pharisees were, were experts in the law, and they would have felt completely fine declaring their own verdict. They were rabbis, many of them, and they had the right to be able to declare this verdict on their own. But they were not interested in what they thought. They thought they had Jesus here. And the reason is, not just because, yes, declaring her to be murdered would be bad. That would, that would look bad, right? I mean, if that story had turned and Jesus said, let us cast these stones to the woman, you know, like we, it would have been like so out of character, so out of whack. But that's not even really why they, why they did this. What, what the, the Pharisees knew that you and I don't know by reading this text is there's a Roman law at work as well. You see, the Jewish people were under Roman occupation, and the, the Romans were okay with like, allowing local religions to operate and have their own little laws and rules as long as they didn't violate Roman law. And one of the Roman law was, laws was you do not get to declare someone, uh, you do not get to declare the death penalty on someone on your own. They have to go through the Roman process, the Roman courts. And so Jesus was in this situation where the Pharisees had him over the barrel on the, on the Mosaic law on one side and over the barrel on the Roman law on the other. If he had said, well, let's not, you know, I know the Mosaic law says to stone her, but let's not stone her. Then all of a sudden they say, well, oh, so you don't hold up the law. You're rejecting Moses. You're rejecting God's word. And if he had said, um, well, no, you know what? The law says we should stone her. Let's, we should do that then they would have had him on a sedition with the Roman government. They would have said, look, this guy's, this guy's stirring up a riot. He's murdered someone. He needs to be arrested by the Romans. They thought they had him. But you don't catch Jesus. What's really at work here is not a call to righteous judgment, even though they knew the law in relation to this woman. They failed to, the, the problem with this whole interaction was that they failed to see themselves through the law. This set them up to failure from the, from the start. This set them up against Jesus because while Jesus would uphold the law, he doesn't uphold uh, a, a self-righteous approach to the law. Self, these self-righteous leaders were willing to play with this woman's life in order to get one on Jesus. That tells you something, right? Self-righteousness leads us to get, condemn others while ignoring or minimizing our own sin. Think about the times you have found yourself looking down on someone, looking down on a group of people. They don't act as good as you do. They don't think rightly about things like you. They've done this thing or that thing or they're doing these things and you don't do those things. You see how easy it is for self-righteousness to slip in? Look at our culture. The anger, the vitriol, the attacks on others. Yes, there might be a justice issue involved. There was a justice issue involved here. There's not one hint that Jesus says, this is really stupid, guys. I can't believe you're doing this. This really does not matter. I don't know why you're making a big deal about it, guys. 
just let the woman do what she wants. Like, no, there's no hint of Jesus dismissing this as a justice issue. But what he exposed was that they were approaching it with a self-righteous attitude. That's where, that's what we see in our culture. There are people who will fight with just, for just causes with an unjust and self-righteous heart that's condemning others while believing they themselves are innocent completely. That's ugly. And if you've, if you've ever had that moment of revelation of realize you're doing that, you're looking down at another person or other people and you're just condemning them, it's, it's, nobody's proud of that moment, right? I've never had somebody, you know, I had the awesome revelation the other day. I was judging this person and they're so horrible and I felt so great. No, it, it's ugly when we look at it, isn't it? And that's what Jesus is doing with these Pharisees. He's trying to hold the mirror up while not saying, hey, you, this issue doesn't matter. He's saying, look, what's going on with your heart matters. And with you and I, we need to be very careful because it's interesting. I used to wonder all the time, why, why throughout the whole New Testament, the Gospels, Paul's letters, uh, Peter, John, all the letters in the New Testament, they, they're all, there's this constant like legalism, self-righteousness, pride. I was like, you know, the, the, there was... If you're familiar with the story, there was the circumcision party and the non, you know, those that said you didn't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. And, and, and yet, what I would say through all that, it, the revelation hit me a long time ago. It's not about, it wasn't about that act itself. It was about the position of the heart that led to that. It was those who were self-righteous. And so why did Jesus spend so much time addressing the Pharisees? Why does Paul spend so much time exposing those who were trying to uh, be legalists and Pharisees and self-righteous? Because it's in your heart and it's in my heart. I have a Pharisee in there and you do too. So let's not, before we, before we go, these darn Pharisees, you know, like, like get down on them, realize that the truth is we all have that in us. We all have that ability to think we're better than someone else. And if you don't, then you just prove my point. Because you're self-righteous about the fact that you're not self-righteous. All right, so we see the self-righteousness uh, emerge as this woman is cast before them. And, and now let's look at this woman who is now facing judgment. The woman who's facing judgment. We don't know much about her situation. This may have been a one-time thing. It may have been some guy who just really out of the blue just seduced her. We don't know. But she made a decision that would change her life forever. This was the worst moment of her life. Don't, don't mistake this. A few minutes before, she had been in the arms of her lover, but now she was exposed, probably not fully dressed, dragged from this place with her lover and now being thrown into and cast into a public space at the feet of Jesus with thousands of other people in the heart of the city, in the heart of worship, the heart of the temple of God. All she knew was she was caught in adultery and then quickly a group of men shouting and boasting, maybe saying something about catching Jesus. They began dragging her towards the temple. Strangely, the man she had been with did not get brought along. Again, pointing to the spirit of the Pharisees here. Maybe she caught some of the Pharisees talking to him afterwards. 
going, hey, buddy, good job, thanks. You're free. You're good to go. As they took her. Dragged to the Temple Mount, cast down in front of, the Jesus, in front of Jesus, there would be crowds and nowhere to hide. Think about what this woman was feeling, the shame. Oh, shame, regret, guilt, fear, dread of what was gonna happen next. Maybe she had heard all along the men talking as they were dragging her, carrying her, bringing her to the temple, that they were gonna bring this law to Jesus and say, she should be stoned, what do you say, Jesus? And maybe she'd heard about this new rabbi but didn't know much about him, and now she's at his feet. Not sure if he's gonna declare, yes, she should be stoned or set her free. But there she is, caught in the act, having heard the judgment from the law of Moses, cast before this new and strange rabbi, and this was the worst moment of her life. I don't know if anybody's had that moment in your life, maybe not quite the, you know, cast in front of people for judgment about adultery, but, but, but you are, you have that thing in you, that moment in your life that you just regret more than anything, that you were more embarrassed than you've ever been. For me, I, I didn't even have to reflect long on this one. It took me about two seconds to realize it was when I was, uh, my senior year in high school, it was five days before graduation and uh, my English teacher, if you don't know my story, I basically flunked my way through high school. My English teacher told me I had to have an 88 on the final exam to uh, graduate. Turned out, you know, if you flunk the entire semester and got a D the previous semester, you, you know, you don't pass a class. And it turns out you have to pass senior English to graduate. Who knew? Uh, <laughs> and so I studied the night before and got an 85. And I went and negotiated with the teacher. I begged her. She could act, actually rounded me up. She chose to round me down. As the days were progressing, a day or two after the exam, I got the grade. I'm like realizing this is going, I'm not going to graduate. I pulled out every stop. I've talked to every teacher. I've had my parents talk to her. I've talked to her. I'm not going to graduate. And so I immediately said, I will, I think it was just protecting myself. I will block this out of my mind. This event does not exist. Graduation. And back then, back when they had to, you know, hand crank copies off of a machine, you know, by hand. Um, no, I'm just joking. It wasn't that bad. But they did print the exercise bulletins ahead of time. I'm sure they still do now as well, but maybe not as far ahead of time. My name was in the commencement exercise bulletin. Not only was it in the list with the names, it was also I had agreed to sing the, the uh, national anthem with three of my friends. So I was highlighted in actual order as well. That Saturday, that day of that graduation, I was driving my car down a four-lane divided highway in my, uh, my uh, county, my area. And, and I, all of a sudden, just traffic started slowing down. And I was like, what the heck? Saturday, this is crazy. And I looked up, and I realized I was getting ready to drive by my own graduation. And I had this mortifying feeling of seeing anyone so I literally drove my car through the median to turn around and go in the other direction. I fortunately didn't have to face anyone because of that and got, and my story is a story of God's redemption. I joke with you, many of you are very, great, very good in high school, valedictorian, salutatorian, whatever. God's got a sense of humor because I'm your pastor. So... <laughs> 
But I think about that moment and the dread I felt and how much more so when death on the line. Not only had she made a horrible mistake, a horrible judgment, she was now being in public being exposed with death on the line. Mortif- she was mortified. We all have our worst moments though, caught in the act, maybe not publicly, but we know what we did. We have this thing called a conscience. And this conscience does not let us go, does it? It whispers, it's talking. It's like an Instagram reel. It'll cue that thing up, you know, when you're on Instagram, you just roll along and all of a sudden a reel opens up and you're like, I didn't click that. You know, that's what your the those worst moments are. They will just pop up and start rolling in your brain, and your conscience will remind you of that feeling, and the guilt and the shame come. On top of that, and part of that is actually of an enemy that delights in doing that. His name is the accuser, according to Revelation 12.10. He's called the accuser of the children or the brethren and children of God. What does he accuse us of? Well, it's not stuff we didn't do. God knows he's got enough stuff we did do. (laughs) He doesn't have to make up things. All he's got to do, just like right now, if I just pick the worst thing you've done or thought or said in the last week and I was going to throw it on the screen, there's no one in this room that would sit here, right? The worst thought, action, or word you said in the last week on the screen in five, four, three, two, one, there would be a stampede out the door, right? (laughs) Why? Because our conscience is there and, and Satan knows our history, our family history, our personal history, all of those actions, and he will bring those things to bear. And so while you may never get cast down in front of a crowd, you may never be caught in the act and be exposed in front of Christ, but you nonetheless are. Your conscience accuses you and the enemy wants to accuse you. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one in here, myself included, gets to stand before Jesus and go, I'm good. That moment of selfishness, act of greed, indulgence of lust, that lie, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, bitterness, refusal to acknowledge Jesus in front of a coworker out of fear. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. In other words, the payment for my sin and what I've done is death. So while this woman was facing like physical death, death exists, physical death exists because of sin and eternal death under God's judgment in hell exists because of sin. The problem we face is similar to this woman. There's a demand for justice according to God's holy law that you and I cannot repute. And we have a burden of that judgment that we cannot bear. Now, okay, Bland. <laughs> That's good. I thought the gospel was good news. It is. This is where the gospel comes in, right here at this moment. Because if you don't ever get here, you don't think you need the gospel. Why do you, the gospel isn't for good people who think they're good. It's for people who know they aren't. People like me, people like you. And neither this Pharisee nor this woman knew who they were dealing with. 
They didn't know Jesus was more just and holy than they could imagine, but more full of mercy and love and grace than they could fathom. So let's look at that. Christ holding justice and mercy together in this passage. And we'll land here. Verses four through six. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, it's honestly one of the reasons I think the gospels ring so true is because it just has little facts like this. Like, it wasn't like he stood and refuted them with great brilliance, you know. No, he just kind of... Okay, blah, 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 started doodling, you know, I don't know, we'll talk about that in a moment, but like he knelt down, which he just refused to engage, which is a good thing to do when you have self-righteous people, just don't engage, especially when they feel like they got you, they got you, got you, and you're like, "Mm, (laughs) you know, just don't feel like you have to engage in that moment, Jesus didn't. He refused to get sucked into what seemed like an impossible situation. But in this, he both upholds justice and extends mercy. So let's see him upholding justice here. Verse 7. As they continued to ask him, so he knelt down. <laughs> I don't know. You know, they were like, did he hear us? <laughs> did he get the question? Let's keep asking him. So they're pestering him. You know, Tell us what you think, Jesus. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. So he stands up and he actually appeals to the law. He says, the law is just. The law is just. Sin requires a penalty. And the penalty for adultery in the Mosaic law was death. So he upholds the law. He says, but he puts a twist on it. He says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. See, the... (laughs) This, this adds some complexity here because the law also said the, first, the person who witnessed it, the two people who, and he had to have two to witness it, those two who witnessed the sin were to be the ones to pick up the stones and start throwing them. And then everyone else is, was to join in. So Jesus says, okay, whichever one of you saw her first and you've examined your heart and you're approaching this out of out of." zeal for Jesus, a zeal for God. Throw your first stone. Jesus was not saying that in order to, to, to judge behavior as sinful that you and I have to be perfectly sinless. The rest of scripture outlines this. This is not an argument that is easy to make from scripture that we should just never say anything is sinful, anything's wrong, anything is morally uh, against God's will or plan. That's not, that is not Jesus's point here. What Jesus's point here, well, in fact, we, we see it many times over and one of Jesus's great analogies that he uses is, uh, or, or stories is he says, you know, when um, he goes, don't, don't judge others till you yourself have judged yourself, basically. Don't, don't take your time trying to get a splinter out of someone else's eye while you have a log in your own. So what's he saying? He's not saying, don't you dare ever look at someone else's splinter. He's saying, make sure you acknowledge your own sin and you come in humility, not self-righteousness. That's a whole different attitude. But, so he suggests humility here. But 
to answer the question, what did Jesus write on the ground? I have no idea. <laughs> there are some suggestions from uh, church history. One of the longstanding traditions said he wrote Jeremiah 17, 13. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Some think he just knelt down to delay, to just doodle, just like you, you, got, you, know, you do on your uh, pad, piece of paper while you're talking to somebody or you're in that horrible Zoom meeting and you're drawing pictures on a piece of paper that's near you, right? Like, you know, maybe he's doing that. It could be. I don't think that would have had the same effect. But some have suggested he wrote the sins of the accuser, all the accusers or names of them. And then it's been suggested that he wrote uh, that in Deuteronomy 9.10, when God wrote the Ten Commandments on stone, it says it was written with the finger of God. So some have suggested he knelt down and started writing the Ten Commandments out in the dirt. Whatever he wrote made an impact, verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. The older ones left. Why? Well, it might point to the wisdom of age. You know, you're younger, you're really zealous, but you don't have a lot of wisdom. <laughs> and the older ones, as they saw Jesus, whatever he wrote, they assessed the situation, their hearts began to be pricked that they were not in the right in this moment. And so they left. At no point does Jesus say, you guys need to chill out. What this woman did is not a big deal. He doesn't. As a matter of fact, at the very end, he says, go and sin no more. Meaning what? She had sinned. So Jesus upholds justice. He upholds the law here but he also extends mercy, extends mercy. The one thing the Pharisees got right was Jesus was the right one to judge. <laughs> I mean, literally, of all the people in the city of Jerusalem to bring this woman in front of, Jesus was the right one. He was the only one who would judge with right judgment. But they missed that Jesus was not just just, but he was full of mercy. I gotta, I gotta begin with this, because and this is a little speculation. So the woman's cast down. These dudes are standing there, they're rah, 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 you know, yelling, talking back and forth, waiting for him. And um, Jesus kneels down, and he's on the ground. Whose level is he on? I, the text doesn't say it, so it's over there. I'm over here speculating. Maybe he made eye contact with her. And for the first time in her life, maybe, a man who was kind and gentle and actually loved her was looking at her. Meanwhile, her accusers are starting to leave one by one until it was just her and him. And Jesus answer, addresses her. He says, woman, by the way, that's not a derogatory term. <laughs> not woman. Uh, nowadays it'd be used like that. You get a man hurt. Uh, <laughs> But uh, the, the, the term woman here is the exact same term Jesus used in John 2 to address, his, or Jesus used to address his mother. So it's not, in, in that culture, it was just a term, it was not negative in any way and actually could be seen as positive. So he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord, which I think says something about her, in her heart at that moment, the recognition of who he was. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. 
Go, and from now on, sin no more. The worst moment in her life turned into the best moment in her life as she, as the heart of God became real to her. As mercy was extended to her. In a moment, there is, this woman thought her life was gonna end. And she knew she was guilty. And yet in that moment, mercy met her. But it wasn't because he dismissed the law, but because he knew that one day he would pay the price for her sin. He knew that rather than her being stoned, he himself would be beaten and nailed to a cross. He knew rather than letting her die, he would die. That he would take her sin, her guilt, her shame onto himself. Jesus doesn't minimize her sin. Quite the contrary, his death shows how serious it is. But it also shows how serious God is about his grace towards us. That's the beauty of the cross, friends. It is that Jesus Christ on the cross both displayed the ugliness of our sin and the incredible depths of mercy and grace of God. Tim Keller said it this way, Jesus Christ combines compassion and justice so perfectly that the world has never seen its like. He is the most absolutely unsurpassed integrated personality, balanced, wise human being we've ever seen. He is not just a kind of uh, compromise, halfway between strong and tender, but rather he is just and righteousness to the nth degree and he's compassionate and melt in your mouth gentle to the nth degree. These two traits don't fight in him, they unite in him. Those who came to Jesus to shame Jesus left in shame, but the one who came in shame left free. You and I today, we carry a burden of sin, shame, fear. And it can define us, it can mark us, it can, we can carry that through our entire lives. It was many years before I began to really come to terms with, with my experience in high school, even though I became a Christian about four months later. It was years before I was able to kind of let that go. I was able to stand up and say that to a group of people and not feel like, like shame about it. And some of you have not been set free from that shame in your life, that guilt. Some of you are carrying something you did this week. And Jesus is inviting you in to experience that mercy, his kindness, his gentleness, his tenderness. To see his heart for you when you're caught in the act, in your worst moment. The invitation is to respond to that today, to respond to that if you're not a Christian, to respond to that for the first time, to experience forgiveness and grace at the feet of Jesus. And you can do that by simply praying during this next song, just bowing your heads and asking Jesus to forgive you, to cleanse you, to make you whole, to set you free. And we can help you with that. Uh, there'll be those at the window over here to pray with people. There'll also be connection cards you can fill out if you want us to help you in that journey. We'd love to walk with you in that. But if you're a Christian, your response to this today, to mercy in Christ, is communion. 
that Jesus, Jesus' body was broken instead of yours. His blood was spilled out instead of yours. And though your conscience may accuse you and though the enemy may come for you, those things do not define you. The mercy and grace of Christ do. And I have one other application that hit me this week as a Christian. And this hit me, and so I'm just sharing it with you. These men were so passionate to bring this woman before Jesus so that he could judge them, judge her, and declare her guilty. They wanted to shame her. They wanted to crush her. And I wonder, they were so, they planned this. They were so passionate about it. And I just wonder, are we passionate about bringing people before the grace and mercy of Jesus as these men were to bring, try to bring them before justice and judgment? Who are you talking to about this grace and mercy as a Christian? Who are you gonna invite to Easter? Who are you inviting out to eat? To share what grace has done for you do you think this woman got up and told anyone? Do you think this woman just kind of went on her merry way? I don't think so. I think we'll get to see her in heaven. I think she was never the same. And anyone who was around her would know that. Let's go ahead and stand. I'm gonna pray. And then over this next song, if you're a follower of Christ, you can go and take the bread and the cup with joy, with freedom be stations around the room. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the one part we'd ask you to not participate in. Please sing, please pray, please, please engage with Christ where you are. Um, but communion is for those who have experienced that, that power of grace in their lives through Christ. So let's pray together and we'll sing. Jesus, what a picture of you in this passage. What a scene wisdom and your kindness of your justice of your grace your tenderness and your gentleness we pray that we would experience that even now in this moment as we sing and respond we take communion help us to believe to go and sin no more in your great name amen